0: Genesis 25. Um, Last week we looked at uh, Abraham sending out his servant looking for a bride for Isaac. We talked about the providence of God. We said when we trust or lean in the providence of God and rest in it, we end up finding the will of God for our lives. So if you weren't here for that, we've got all that online, you can can get that. Today we are going to look at a subject that I'm going to tell, I'm going to warn you in advance, just in advance. Um, It's going to stir up a lot of of emotion. I don't think there's anybody, if you're a stoic person, you're still going to feel something today. And at the end, I trust uh, that you'll be blessed and encouraged. Even though it'll be kind of a hard road to go through, I think you'll be encouraged at the end to see what the outcome looks like. So we're looking at the anatomy of family conflict. And I'm going to uh, because there's a lot in there, so uh, there's a number of different subjects that sort of skip, we're mainly interested in looking at Jacob and Esau. But let me just open up, because we're also going to read about the death of Abraham. You look at verse 1 of chapter 25. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. And it gives a list of the sons that she bore him. Verse 5, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away with his son Isaac to the land of the east. Then it says in verse 7, although Abraham lived, um, altogether Abraham lived 175 years, then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age. An old man, full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Let me pray. Father, thank you for, for the life of Abraham. Thank you that we realize that, Lord, you... Raise people up uh, to do great works, and he certainly was a man that did a great work, and we're thankful for that. And Lord, we have much to look at in this text that's going to raise up, I'm sure, much emotion regarding family dynamics, and I pray, Father, that you would bring healing, Lord, to all of our lives through it. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Rather than read the text about Isaac, uh, about uh, Jacob and Esau, I'm going to just kind of walk us through it. Well, let me tell you, here is a man, Abraham, that we have been following for quite a few weeks now, ever since Genesis chapter 12. If you're not aware of what Abraham has accomplished and done, it was through Abraham that the Messiah would come. It is through Abraham that God would call his son Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through to the promised child. And so Abraham had to be this one that was called out from the Ur of the Chaldees, to be the father of a great nation, be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so it comes to a close. But it's interesting because when God has a man or a woman that has done a great work and he buries them, he simply raises up more to continue on that work. Now we're going to look at this incredible family dynamic uh, between Jacob and Esau in the text that's going to be before us. Uh, but... I don't want us to forget this great, um, this great narrative of the life of Abraham. Let's not forget what we've learned about his life. Here's a man that struggled at the very, very beginning of him coming to know the Lord. He lies, then he raises up a child he shouldn't have raised up, Ishmael, then he lies again, and then he's willing to offer up his son Isaac because he's eventually maturing in his Christian faith where he realizes, I can trust God for anything. Absolutely anything. Now, what we're going to see here as we walk through this text from verses 19 all the way down to the end of the chapter in verse 34 is the beginning of the conflict that exists in every single family on the earth. Every family has conflict to some degree some greater than others, and it brings up a lot of emotion because you may be looking back at your past and you're thinking of certain things that happened in your family or maybe you're dealing with things right now. The beauty of Scripture is it doesn't hide things. It tells the great truth about what human life is really like. So as we might go through some emotionally hard times here, I pray that at the end I will give you a tagline that I hope will give you some great hope for tomorrow. Of the future. Let's take a look, Genesis chapter uh, twenty-five, and we're going to look down at verse nineteen. And here's what it says: verses nineteen through twenty-one. This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was forty years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramaean. Now here we, we we see the very beginning here of this of this. Isaac being introduced, somebody once said that Isaac was the son of a great father and the father of a great son. But Isaac himself was kind of pale. It was, it was sort of nondescript. There's a whole lot about Isaac. Uh, a few problems here and there, but just sort of a, uh, uh, not a terribly uh, descriptive personality that you, would, that you would bring out. We'll see a few things regarding him in a, in a moment. Verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, uh, Rebecca, became pregnant. So here he prays, and his wife becomes pregnant. But then we're introduced to something that uh, you're just taken kind of by surprise. And she's certainly taken by surprise. Verse 22, the babies, we have twins, jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she uh, went to inquire of the Lord. Twins. Right away, you can almost anticipate the sense of sibling rivalry. You can feel the narrative beginning to develop. There are these twins. They're jostling. They're wrestling inside. You know, it's amazing. There are so many many things in the Bible that when you first read it, you go, "That's, that's really kind of the dumbest thing I've ever read in my life. Could that really be true? You no know, snakes crawling and eating dust and all that? That's what snakes eat when they stick their tongues out, they eat dust. And we find out things later through science that Scripture has been way ahead. We are now finding out that there is rivalry taking place with, in twins in the womb. We're also finding out that uh, a woman with a child, uh, many times when, they're, when that, that, that uh, woman that is carrying a, a child goes through a trauma during the time of, of that period, that gestation period, that often the child is harmed in some way. That is not to frighten anybody. That has we're talking about life is out of control. All right, you can't control things, and so we're already introduced to a to a situation here. We've got these 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 twins in the womb here, and Rebecca is going. You know what's what's happening here uh, to me. So look at verse twenty three. Says this: The Lord said to her. Two nations are in your womb. And you try to imagine the Lord saying this to you if you're carrying twins. And two peoples from within you will be separated. There is going to be division here. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. That is key. The older will serve the younger. The older is Esau. The younger is Jacob. The older will serve the younger. This is absolutely key <coughs> to things that flow from here on out. All right, This is where the problem is because normally it's the younger that's going to serve the older. That's just how things were in those days in that particular part of of this world. And this isn't going to happen in this particular situation. God comes to Rebecca and he says, let me just tell you, it's not going to happen. He says the older is going to serve the younger. And that's exactly what's going to happen as you see as we begin to move through this. We talk about the blessing, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Look at verses 24 to 26. Things begin to unfold here. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was called Jacob, which means heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Right away, right away, you see a difference in physicality, how they're physically made. You're going to see more and more an unfolding of their personalities and things that begin to to unfold here. We see that, that Jacob is a heel grabber. That plays a role in his life. There is personality There's humanity in the womb. I'm just saddened that this world doesn't believe that anymore. But it's true, and it's right here. Here are two children, alive, wrestling within the womb with their own personalities, their own physical strength and weaknesses. Very, very different. You're going to see such an incredible division in just the way they think, the way they act, the way they look, everything about them. And this helps set the stage for the fact that that's what our families look like. Our families look like that. Our children are different. Our grandchildren are different. We're different than our siblings. We're different than our parents. All these things are being brought out in this text. As only God could write a particular story. Now, verse 27. Here's where it really starts to heat up. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying at home, among, or in, the, in the tents, all right? Distinct personalities. Very, very distinct. You have one who is a skillful hunter. There is nothing wrong with that, all right? You have one who is more quiet, wants to stay more at home. Maybe he reads and so on. Nothing wrong with that. They're just different. And differences cause problems. They just do. This is the anatomy of conflict in a family. There is an automatic competitive spirit already in the womb. And out comes that competitive spirit outside. You cannot help but to have a certain competitive nature no matter whether you'd say I'm just not a competitive person or they're very competitive. All of us have a certain degree of wanting to stake our claim in life. And particularly with with siblings there's just naturally some things that that don't go right. There are things that, that, that get rubbed wrong. One might feel inferior. The other might feel superior. Some come out very confident. Others come out less confident. You know, some, you look at a child, you see some are maybe very attractive. Others may be less attractive. Some have more social skills. Others have less social skills. Some are more athletic. Some less so. Some are more academic. All these things play out, and you can't fix it. But we want to fix it. But you can't fix it. All right? And this is the problem. This is all the problem. All the stuff that's going on. Here we have the you know the elections coming up here, the midterms, all that, and everybody thinks if my team gets in, they're gonna fix it. Not gonna fix anything, all right? This is a broken world. One group might do better than the other, but there's nobody's gonna fix anything. There's only one that's gonna come, and he's not gonna fix it, he's gonna redeem it. All right? I mean he's gonna make all things new, all things right. Now, what we're introduced to here is is all these different problems. Families, by nature, have these problems built into the family. Uh, Families in Scripture, I was talking to Bruce Campbell the other day on the phone, and Bruce and I were talking about families in the Bible. And Bruce said, can you name me one model family in Scripture? I said, I've heard this story before. I said, there is no such thing. Because we often talk about, we often say this this big word in, in our culture today, boy, that's a dysfunctional family. I've got news for you. Every family is dysfunctional, all right? Some just to greater degrees than others, all right? Let's take a look at God's family. God, God literally molded the first two. He takes Adam out of the ground, He takes Eve from his side. He, he, these are His two children. He walks with them in the cool of the day. How'd that work out? These are God's children. They eventually said, we don't want to follow you. We want to follow the wicked one. We think you're lying to us. Yea, hath God said, Satan said to them? How'd that go? Not well. They have two children, Cain and Abel. How'd that go? Cain kills Abel. Then you see Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. How'd that go? Just go back to Genesis 9 and read the account there of what takes place in the tent. All right? We see uh, Abraham and Lot struggling. We see, uh, uh, we, we see uh, Sarah and Hagar, the battle that w- when it goes on in that family. We've already studied, studied all that. We see Jacob and Esau. We're going to see Joseph later on w- with a coat of many colors and all the turmoil that takes place in that family. And on it goes. Then you look at somebody like King David. Oh, there's a guy that must know how to do things right. Look at his family. What a mess. What a mess. And what the scripture is simply saying here is that at the very beginning, when we started Genesis, one of the first verses we looked at was Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict in life. And we can do all we can to resolve it. And we're responsible to do all we can. But ultimately, the results are in God's hands. Now... Now you can really see things heat up when we get to verse 28. Look at this. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Favoritism. And look at what the favoritism is over. Isaac has an appetite, he likes to eat. His son is a hunter. He loves him more than he loves his other son. This can happen in families. Oh, my boy is the great athlete. My other son's not. All those things, favoritism. This, when, when this is introduced, problems are automatically going to come. And I will tell you this: favoritism is unavoidable. It is unavoidable. You might say, "No, I love all my kids the same. I just don't like them all the same, but I love them all the same." All right. You love all your kids the same. All right, and that may be true but they don't think it's true. And that's the problem. It's the perception. You give, you give a, a, a 10-year-old a $5 bill, you give another one of your children you know, a $5 bill, they'll both think the other one's $5 is more valuable. They're convinced you really got $10. It, it, it's just how it is. It's just how it is. You, 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 you can't make that thing right. It's life. And it's borne out right here in this text. Jesus, the perfect person, the perfect human, the perfect discipler, At the end of the Gospel of John, he tells Peter, "Here's how you're going to die," and Peter says, "What about him? What about about John?" And Jesus says, "None of your business." You know what Jesus? We know what Peter was saying. You're showing. You're playing favorites. Jesus couldn't play favorites. It's impossible, but it was perceived that way. Life is perceived that way. It's perceived that way at the office, in the carpool, on the football team. It's always perceived that way. That's our nature. And it's it's borne out in this particular text. My brother <coughs> and I have a very different perspective on how we were raised. My brother had a great respect for my mom and dad, um, and I had a great respect. My mom and dad, my sister, are the same. We all had great respect, but we all saw them differently. And after they've died, we've we've spent time talking a little bit about our upbringing. Now, my sister is the youngest. My brother is the oldest, and I'm in the middle. My brother is a smart guy, uh, always told the truth, good, you know, academics. My sister, perfect, you know, all that kind of stuff. Then there was me, all right? I was a bit of the problem child. I was sort of the black sheep. And here's the interesting thing. My dad, particularly my dad, spent so much time focused on me and my problems and all that, that my brother felt left out. He didn't have any problem. There was nothing to fix in my brother. My brother was really just a great guy. All right, and academics, everything. Never told a lie. George Washington cutting down the cherry tree, all that kind of stuff. Everything. He was just there. Drove me crazy. All right. But my brother says I missed out on what you had with that, the relationship you have with that. He just sees it completely I'm looking. At, I'm thinking. I'm seeing through the same lens he's seeing. He's not seeing it the same way. And there are other. Factors, both my brother and my sister can walk outside and one ray of sunshine hits them, they turn a golden brown. I walk outside and turn a golden blister. And I don't like either one of them for it. You know, it just bugs me no end. But I, somehow the genes got mixed up. Someplace. Okay, here's the point. You can't, you, can't, you can't control any of those things. You just can't. And then there's jealousies, and all these things begin to take place. Look at verses 29 to 30. It says in verse 29 Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick! Let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. That is why he was called Edom. Alright? He's red. Okay? What do we see about? Esau, he's impetuous, he's quick, he wants instant gratification. And in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says he was a profane man. The word profane means outside the temple, meaning secular, meaning not wanting anything to do with the things of God. And it also goes on and it says, and he was a fornicator. So you begin to see his appetites for food and and, and sexual passions, and he has to have it quick now. Now. Very impetuous. Man's man out hunting and so on. But these are his problems. These are his great flaws. Then we see that Jacob was also a very cunning and crafty person. He had his way. He understood how he was going to do things. He knew he could take advantage because he understood his brother very well. He had studied his brother through the years they were growing up. So he's going to take advantage. Take a look at verse 31. It says this. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Sell me your birthright. The birthright had three parts to it. The birthright in that part of the world at that time, you got double the inheritance, you became the head of the family, patriarch, so to speak, and the priest of the family, the spiritual side. That came with it. Jacob I am convinced, knew that, because remember, he had to have known that the elder was going to serve the younger. His mom must have told him, somewhere along the line. Yet, what he wanted, I believe, I believe he really wanted a spiritual side to this thing that he thought his brother would get. He just went about it in a wrong way, all right? But Jacob actually finishes well. He's a scoundrel, almost all throughout his life, but he finishes well. Just like Abraham finished well. So here's Esau. Quick, give me that that food. I want it right now. I'll sell my birthright to you. All right? Verse 32, we read this. Look, I'm about to die. Oh, come on. (laughs) Esau said, what good is the birthright to me? Now, just think. Oh, I'm, I'm about to die. I've got to have this instant gratification, and I'm willing to sell my birthright. I'm willing to give up all that I just mentioned that the birthright entails. What a gross exaggeration. I think he's going to die. He's not going to die. Verse 33, we read this. But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling him the birthright. Sells the birthright to Jacob. This sort of reminds me of a a person who uh, travels and has a one-night stand. Instant gratification. And then may lose his entire family or job or career or whatever. This, this is what is brought out here, this idea of I've got to have something right now. Or they, they see something they can't afford and they swipe that card, get themselves into severe debt. All those types of things. And yet, what is this really bringing up? This is us. Not everybody is a Jacob, not everybody's an Esau, but there's parts of this, this is me, I can feel it. Because the Bible is constantly describing what you and I are really like. What our children are like. What our grandchildren are like. What our spouses are like. What all these, and then you begin to wonder... You begin to realize this is why there's so much conflict in life. There's just so much conflict that exists in life. All right? Verse 34. Very sad verse. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Listen to these statement. He ate, he drank, and then he got up and he left. So Esau despised his birthright. That's what somebody does with a one-night stand. They despise their family. That's what we do whenever we do anything that affects other people. We despise it. We don't realize it. We might not think that we are. He despised his birthright. He had contempt for his birthright. All the things that would have come his way. So, with this, which we've gone through rather rapidly, what do we take out of this in a very practical way? Now, I'm telling you, there are some hard things here we're going to be looking at. But we're going to end well. I promise you. We're going to end well. Personality mixed with favoritism causes problems. Personality mixed with favoritism causes problems. Personality alone will cause problems. Here's an example. A father sends his two sons out to clean the garage. He comes out an hour later and they haven't done much. And he says, you two are never going to amount to anything. You're you're just a bunch of lazy fools. And he walks in. And one son says, I guess I'm just never going to amount to anything. I'm just a lazy fool. And he's under the care of a psychiatrist and medication the rest of his life. The other son says, really? You think I'm a fool? You think I'm lazy? I'll show you. And he becomes president of IBM. Two completely different personalities responding to the very same words. The identical words. This is why when you're raising children getting to know people at the office, whatever, you begin to learn after a while, words mean different things to different people and how they're spoken. Totally different. Totally different. I've seen this over and over and over again. There's another one. Uh, Parents have no control over their children but only responsibility. I've said this over and over again. You are not responsible for how your children turn out. You are responsible... To train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How that goes from there, not up to you. You're only supposed to do what God tells you to do in how you raise them. You are not responsible for your spouse. A man is only responsible to love his wife as Christ loved the church, and his wife is responsible to respect and reverence her husband. You know why God says that? Because God knows that women need love and he knows that men need respect. And we go to seminars and we read books and we read DVDs and God says, you don't need to do all that. Just do what I told you. Everything will be fine. Just do what I say. We don't do anything. And that's the problem. This is where the conflict comes in. And nobody's ever going to do it perfectly. Okay? So as we go through this, we begin to realize there is no control. You can't control other people. You can't control how your boss is going to be tomorrow, or what's going to happen. You have no control, right? But you do have responsibility, and you're responsible to do what God has told you to do. Instant gratification can destroy a life. It can destroy a destiny, We you've just seen. Illicit pleasure lasts, but for a moment, consequences a lifetime. Okay, now I want to end by giving you some hope, because you might be thinking, gosh, I have no control? I've got a personality that conflicts with my spouse and my children. I'm, oh my God! This is just why'd I come today? All right. I'll tell you because we're going to leave with some hope. All right. You might as well face reality. Okay. Just face reality. Now, here's what I want to say. Um, there is. I I wanted to go into advertising many many years ago. I like to come up with little one-liners for for ads, which is probably why I do taglines, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, and I. One of the best ads on television is Farmer's Insurance. We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. It's a brilliant ad. Because they'll show you some real messed up thing, and all of a sudden, we know how to handle that. It's it's brilliant. It's a brilliant ad. Now, in June, Reston Bible Church will be 45 years old. I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. There is nothing I haven't seen, all right? Nothing. I've seen it all. And I've, I've walked with families. I've, I've seen coming here, I've seen little kids. I do their weddings, then I do their kids' weddings. I'm seeing their kids have kids. When you have been in a place for a long time, you can't brag about it. It's, you just lasted that long, that's all. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you just managed to get, get through it, okay? But you begin to see patterns. You begin to see things in people's lives. There are some things that don't make any sense at all. Sometimes you'll see people that are really good parents, and their kids don't seem to follow suit. Then you'll see people that don't care one bit about how their kids turn out, and they become godly children. This is what Ecclesiastes is about. But the point is, you really don't have any control. You can't make anything happen. But I I have seen so much uh, through life and, and through ministry And you can wind up feeling hopeless when you hear a message about these two and how life is is such a a mess. You can feel hopeless. But this, just do what is right and leave the results to God. That's what we're called to. To do what is right, leave the results to God. Now here's the tagline. I want you to listen to it very, very carefully. Because the first run-through won't make any sense. But just listen. Because we're always talking today about finding, you know, victory and, and being set free and, and all the different terms that we use. Oh, that person's really free. I wish I was more free or I could just find the victory in the Christian life and all those kind of things. Listen carefully. The way to be set free in this world is to realize you will never be set free in this world. Did you follow that? The way to be set free... In the Christian life, in this world, is to realize you will never be set free in this world, in this life. It's impossible. This world is in bondage. This world is filled with sin and brokenness and pain. But once you understand that truth that I just gave you, you'll start moving in the direction of being set free. I'll tell you why. All illustrations break down, but this came to my mind. Two men commit murder, they're both sentenced to life in prison. They both have their cells right next to each other, their cell blocks. They both have opportunities to go to the library in the, in the prison or to work out certain time frames and so on. <clears throat> One of the guys gets in and says, I'm going to get out of here. I don't care, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to hire another lawyer. I'm going I'm to find some way. I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to study the law. I'm going to find if there's a loophole out of here. I'm going to get out of here. I don't care how I, I'm getting out of here. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life in this cell. The other guy goes, I'm not getting out of here. There's no way out of here. I'm guilty, and I'm not getting out. But I'm going to make the most of my time while I'm here. I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to improve my brain. I'm going to learn poetry or literature. I'm going to write. I might write a book, but I'm going to make the most of life. Which one is most free? The one that thinks he's going to get out, or the one that realizes he's not getting out? The man that realizes he's not really free is all of a sudden free. And the man that thinks he's got it all together and he's going to work it out, he can't. I see one of the greatest problems in the evangelical world today. And I'm all for seminars, DVDs, things on marriage, books. We've got a bookstore. I'm all for all of that. But the problem is so many people think this is going to fix my marriage. If we just watch this, this set of DVDs or go to this seminar. I, I, there was a thing that came out years ago. Uh, Six Keys to Wedded Bliss. You know, six just six things and all of a sudden everything is great. You know, how to raise perfect children, all these things we have. And it's like a carrot being dangled out in front of the mule. And he just keeps leaping and it just never gets there. The seminar never does it. The new theological system never does it. This never does it. That never does it. It never does it. And then we get become discouraged. But once we realize that none of those things will ever do it and stop thinking that they will... That's when we start finding real freedom. We start moving in the direction of real, genuine freedom. Listen to these passages because we're thinking wait a minute, Mike, there's lots of scripture that talks about being set free. You're right, there certainly is. John, the Gospel of John, Jesus says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. The Apostle Paul said, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He also said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You you see all of these passages, over and over and over again. Cast all your cares upon him, he cares for you. Be holy, for I am holy. Here's one. Be be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Some are commands, and some are simply saying this is what actually happens when you you believe these different things. So here's the question. If those are true, and they are, every one of those is absolutely true. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So why do you and I lay awake at night condemning ourselves? Ask yourself that question. Oh, I blew it. Oh, look what I did. Oh, I'm... And and you just beat yourself up at night. You toss, you turn, you can't sleep. Why? Because God is up there saying, what didn't you understand about what I said? I'm not up here wrestling with what you've done. You've repented. You've dealt with it. Now go to sleep. Roll over on the pillow and get some sleep. How about, how about, oh, boy, if if the Democrats don't get in, if the Republicans don't get in, oh, oh, come on. We sit and, and fuss and fume about so many things. And yet it says, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Well, if his burden is light and you give it to him, why do we lay awake at night with a heavy burden? It isn't that those aren't true. It's that you and I are incapable of fully believing your truth. That's our problem. But in the process of my life, I'm growing, I'm learning, I've been through trials, I've been through all kinds of things, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm not there yet. But I'm beginning to realize what freedom really looks like. I'm growing. Abraham, all the problems he had to the point where he could look at his son and say, if God says I'm to offer you up, I'm going to offer you up. Now that's what it looks like to have perfect freedom, perfect victory. No more worry, you just go all right? But yet, we will toss and turn and struggle over and over and over again. You know what I struggle with a lot? It isn't even just all that goes on here as far as people and their problems. It's the parking lot, all right? And I can't fix it. So Bruce Campbell has to fix it, all right? But I do. I'll I'll, I'll worry about that. What can I do? I can't do anything. I can't put another lane. I I can't do anything. But every single Sunday, I come here and go, oh, Oh, people all backed up. And I can't do anything. But we, we as humans try to fix things. God has come to redeem things. Very, very different. He's going to make all things new. All right? So we see all these. And I would say this as, you, as, as we ponder. Broken relationships, friction, marriage problems, problems with children, grandchildren, all sibling rivalries, all that. Today is the day to put it to rest. And to stop saying, I'm such a terrible person. Look what I've done. No. God says, you are completely forgiven. There is no condemnation. And as you reflect on those texts, and you think about something you're struggling with right now, as you reflect on those, don't let those just go by. Recognize the fact it's going to be a challenge to believe those texts. That's what faith is. And that is, a, that is a growth process. So you get up every morning and you start the day and you say, Lord, I have no idea what the day holds. I know you know. I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to follow you. I'm just simply going to do what is right. I'm going to treat my children a certain way, my spouse, my grandchildren, people at the office. I'm going to do what is right. The results, I cannot control. The only thing I have any say in at all is whether or not I'm going to be obedient in following Jesus. Now, you might be here today, I mentioned if you've come in, and I do this every week, if you've come in, and you wouldn't consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, at least you know this, whether you believe the Bible or not, you know that what I've said today, what God has said today, is true. You know that you are struggling in life in so many places, and you do not know where to turn. You don't know what to do. Jesus didn't lay awake at night wondering whether or not the Father was keeping the heavens moving properly. Jesus didn't lose sleep over relationships because Jesus was the perfect God, perfect man. And thus the things that we couldn't do, the perfection that we are called to, the righteousness that we don't have, he fulfilled it for us. That's freedom. But it takes a lifetime to fully grasp that. It takes a lifetime to realize that true freedom, real genuine freedom, the way to be set free is to realize that in this world you will never be totally set free. But you can be on the proper trajectory and direction of growing in freedom. You grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter says. But you can only do that if you know the Savior. And if you have never come to Christ, with all of your baggage, with all the conflict, with all the difficulties, come to Him today. Call upon Him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So tonight, get some rest. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the opportunity to open up Your Word. And I pray, I know, that there are people here today that are struggling in so many areas. I, myself, and I pray that today we would lay this down. Every day we would realize that you are not up there worrying about how we're doing. You have said you're free. The truth has set you free. There is no condemnation. You're telling us to stop condemning ourselves, to stop worrying that we're set free. And Lord, give us the faith to believe that we've been set free. We're on that right trajectory. And Father, I pray that no one would leave here today without calling upon the name of the Lord. That today would be the day they would realize that Christ died and paid the penalty for their sin and rose again. They can be taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of your dear Son. Now, Father, I pray that you would dismiss us with this last number, encourage our hearts, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.